James, heavy verses, um, and yet God is good, and God is you know, the one who does everything in us that's any good, right? So James 2, 14 through 26, Paul read for us earlier. I'm just going to read through it again, and then we'll come back and look up a few things and uh, talk it through. So what does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? And if a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the simple things that are needed for the body, what does that profit? And thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God? Well, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? And was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works? And by works, faith was made perfect. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. So we've been going through the book of James, and here's where we land today on these passages. And the name of this sermon this morning, or Bible study really, I don't know about sermons, but this Bible study is called Justified, because we do want to know that we are, don't we? And we do want to know that we're going to be with the Lord. And, you know, the just are going to live by faith. The book of James is about faith, if you've been following along. But it's about a faith that's either real or useless. A faith that's either serious or dead. And he talks about the trials and the testings that bring our faith to a maturity. And we've gone through that in chapter 1. And the result is endurance with a hope set on eternal life. And a faith that comes as you with meekness receive the implanted word, able to save your souls. A true faith is shown by walking in the works that he prepared before us, or uh, for us before time, really. Faith is like the word speed. You know, you can say you got speed, but until you're out there on the track running, nobody sees it. Nobody knows that's what's going on. So faith is like that, too. You can say all you want about your faith, but unless it's visible, unless it's being acted out, unless it's part of your life, And that's what James is about. And so the purpose for writing, though, as we've gone through so far, is to address how they've been treating the poor and the lowly brother amongst them and to warn them against seeking and walking after and pursuing the wealth of this world and the pleasure of this world. And um, so he's saying they have, or they're, they're saying that they have faith. And he says that a number of times that they're saying it. And uh, yet the works are not there. The real works. And so that's what he's pointing it out. And leading up to verse 14, James addresses the problem of partiality and favoritism that was going on. A guy would walk in when, in uh, dirty clothes and they'd kind of put him off to the side or sit over here where I ain't got to you know, look at you. And a rich guy would come in, they'd put him right down front and give him a cushion and all. And so that kind of favoritism was going on. And uh, he was writing to the 12 tribes that were scattered, but they were believers, he calls them brothers and brethren. And as such, uh, having faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And not uh, just, uh, you know, and there's possibly some came across from the synagogue with the true believers that followed along. We're still not necessarily 100% in uh, that camp. And so these are that kind of mixed multitude that he's, you know, addressing here to actually say to somebody, is your faith real? Is your faith dead? And uh, he's writing to brothers, but clearly there's an audience there that he's addressing. And so, um, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind as you, your, uh, and your neighbor as yourself. He talks about that royal law in the first part of chapter 2. And that royal law, because they're used to keeping the law, you know, the written law, the letter of the law. These are the Jews. They know the law. They've been keeping it, all the feasts and festivals. And so, but he's reminding them of this royal law, 
and that we discovered in Matthew 22, if you weren't here Wednesday, uh, verses 37 through 40, again, where Jesus says, um, what is the commandment when these uh, Pharisees asked him, and again, to love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and your neighbor as yourself. So, but they had become judges, it says in chapter 2 early on, and they had become judges with evil motives because they were favoring the rich guy over the poor. And so they had a, uh, a lack of mercy. And he addresses that too at the very tail end of, of uh, last part of that section, verses 12 and uh, 13 in uh, chapter 2. It says, So speak and do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. You've been set free. Um, God, you know, sent Jesus. He died for our sins. We have liberty now. We've been set free. And we have liberty to do the good things. It's, we, we don't use that liberty. And he talked about that in order that we can run out and, and walk after all the sin and walk after all the wickedness that we used to. He washed us. We're clean. And so now we're walking after and after him and those, those things he prepared for us, again, before the foundation of the world, to walk in them. And um, we walk in that liberty. And it says, finally, mercy is not mercy unless it's shown in our lives and by our works and, and our deeds that we're now free to do. So picking up in verse 14 for this morning, it says, What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? And now that kind of sends a chill because he's sitting here talking to his brethren and he's talking about those brethren amongst them that have a faith in Jesus but can't save them. I mean, the implication is, the answer is no. Can that faith save them? Well, if a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says, depart in peace, go be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? And he says, thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So there are many who say they have faith, um, but they don't do what God has given them to do. So what went wrong? You know, there's two possibilities. I'm sure there's variations. But either they're still blinded by the pleasures that they're seeking after in the world or the pursuits of wealth and the earthly comforts, and that's blinding them. Or they never really had a saving faith that there's no works coming out of them. Now, uh, as far as, you know, we could go to Hebrews 10, verse 22, real quick, if you'd like. And, you know, you're going to want to maybe keep your finger in these passages as we turn because there's a, um, we'll be coming back to them. Hebrews 10, 22 through 25. He says, Well, let us draw near with a true heart in a full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We're not walking in our, our previous pleasures and lusts. And let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. But let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day approaching. And boy, do we see the day approaching. You know, Jesus came to take away our sins and that we should repent and lay all that aside. He's talked about earlier in James and receive that free gift of eternal life. You know, if you, that saving faith, if that's not there and, he, and it doesn't come with repentance, if it doesn't come from laying aside all those things, maybe that's what James is talking about here. A faith that they may have in Jesus, but it's without repentance. It's, it's without a new life and walking in him. And he said that there would be those, Jesus said that there would be those that would prophesy in his name. They'd cast out demons and they would do wonderful works. But then when they came to him at the end, he would say he never knew them. But what's key to that verse, I mean, what's wrong with prophesying? What's wrong with doing good works? And what's wrong with, you know, uh, um, casting out demons and all? But then at the end he says he called them workers of iniquity. And that can only mean one thing. They're still walking in their sin. They may have done these things in Jesus' name because Jesus' name has great power. And at that time, that may have been what was going on. But as it turns out, they were still walking and doing and being workers of that iniquity. And that's what brings that to that point where he never knew them. 
you know, if, you, if you're still just walking the way you were, if he washed us, he cleansed us from all that stuff. And you know the lists. We were wicked. We were sinners. And he's now given us things in us that only he can do. There's things that we can walk in that we can't do of ourselves. We were sinners. We're lost. And so we walk in those things, and we look for those things in our lives. Our testimony is a testimony of only the things that he could do in our lives, not that we could do of our own strength. And so we ask that uh, you know, he would show us those things, and then we walk in them. So verses um, 18 through 20 Well, someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Well, show me your faith without your works. And James is saying, I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God. Well, you do well. Even demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? And like I said, these guys were casting out demons and they came to Jesus. Well, demons believe and they tremble. Believing is, is, I mean, there are all kinds of people. If you go up to the guy in the street, well, I believe in God. Well, first question is, what God? Who's your God? Or what's your God? You know, back in the Old Testament, Jeremiah was talking to these guys. They'd, make, they'd cut down a tree, cut off a branch, pick the good part. They'd haul it home, and they'd carve it into a little idol, and they'd sit down and they'd say that this is my God who made me. Well, they made that God, not to mention if you've got a God that you've got to haul around on a cart, well, then it's probably... Not really God. He could probably get himself around, I think. And so it's kind of a, a thing where people tend to even call anim, inanimate objects. And even to this day, you know, there's people who probably think more of their car than they think of maybe their their uh, relationship with the Lord. And we we can of, often say that uh, you know it's uh, important to know that the one true God is the God who sent His one and only Son. And Jesus wanted them to know that more than anything else when he was here. What do you keep on repeating to him? That, uh, you know, I come from my Father to do his will. And so it's important for us to know the, the one true God who we believe in. And again, Jesus says, you know, if, you're, if your uh, life doesn't show, if it doesn't come with repentance, and if it doesn't come with keeping his commandments, and then that kind of faith is no different than somebody who's just uh, doing things in his name, but they don't know him. And so in verses, uh, you know, there is a faith in Jesus, actually, that is dead and useless and cannot save you. And so we look for the example in verses 21 through 24 of Abraham. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he called, or I'm sorry, when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? And do you see that faith was working together with his works and by faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled which says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness and he was called a friend of God. So you see then, a man is justified by works and not by faith only. And you want to make sure that only is in there because you know that would sound an awful lot like a contradiction to much of the rest of the New Testament. But he's not talking about by works alone but by works that prove out faith. So let's go ahead and look at um, Genesis 17. And you'll definitely want to keep your finger here. We'll be coming back to it in a little bit as well. Abraham, our father, he calls him. And when we talk about our father, you know, James is writing to the 12 tribes scattered. And certainly uh, the Jews are the descendants of Abraham. And, you know, Jesus would clarify that, and Paul would clarify that, that there are some that call themselves Jews, but they're not. And so it's also faith. And it's also, uh, we are his descendants through faith. So, chapter 17, we're just going to read 1 through 8. When Abraham was 99 years old, and the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, I am Almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless, and I will make my covenant between me and you, and will multiply you exceedingly. And then Abram fell on his face, and God called, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold my covenant with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. 
No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations, and I will make you exceeding, exceedingly fruitful. And I will make nations of you, and kings shall come of you. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Also, I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan as an everlasting, underline that, possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant and your descendants after you out of their, throughout their generations. Um, Hebrews 11. Let's just go and look at Hebrews 11. Keep your finger back there in Genesis. We'll be coming back. In verses 17 through 19, it says, By, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promise offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead from which he received him in a figurative sense. And if we look back at... Um, Genesis 18, it brings that perspective. We don't see really necessarily from Genesis where Abraham expected Isaac to come back. But in fact, he did. And we'll see that when we get back a little bit later. But in uh, verses 15 through 21, it would be Sarah to whom it was promised and not Hagar the Egyptian. And that's important. In Genesis 18, some time had passed and the Lord came back to Abraham and he said, in the time of life, or in a year or so, the same time next year, Sarah would have a son. Now, Abraham laughed at this, obviously. He's in his you know, 90s. Um, and Sarah was not a young gal anymore either. And uh, for the first time, and so now Sarah laughed within herself. But he said, it is, is anything too hard for the Lord, was what he had for them. And in Genesis 21, Isaac is born named Isaac because God had made them laugh, and anyone who heard Sarah's story laughed as well. And, but this was Abraham's son of promise, uh, from whom would come the generations of God's covenant and who would dwell in the land that was promised. And Abraham knew this because uh, God could have, only God could have done this thing. Abraham believed God, and he knew this was God's promise and along with the covenant. And then we get to 22. Genesis 22, and we can read 1 through 19. And it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham. And he said to him, Abraham, he said, here I am. He said, then take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. And God had a specific place where he wanted to, him to do this. And so Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son, and he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. And then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey and the lad and I will go yonder and worship and we'll come back to you. He said, we will come back to you. And so Abraham took the word uh, the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son and he took the fire in his hand and a knife and the two of them went together well Isaac said Abraham his father my father he said here I am son he said well look the fire and the wood but where is the lamb for a burnt offering and Abraham said my son God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering so the two of them went together and then they came to the place of which God had told them, and Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood on the altar and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. Well, and Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He said, Here am I. He said, Do not lay your hand on the lad nor do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God and since you have not withheld your son, your only son. And then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its thorns. So Abraham went and took the ram 
offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord Will Provide, as it is said to this day, The Mount of the Lord, It Shall Be Provided. And then the angel of the Lord called out to, to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, Behold, or by myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your only son, blessed, blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven, as the sand of the sea on the seashore, and your descendants shall possess the gates of their enemies. And in your seed, notice, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. And so Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham dwelt at Beersheba. You know, when, when the Bible says through, it's by faith or through faith, um, it's not what they're saying about themselves. It's what they're doing. If we are people of faith, well, then we're going to be faithful people. And um, when uh, we read through Hebrews, it was by faith because Abraham knew that his son was the seed of promise. And we're going to see that a little bit earlier. We'll come back to it in a minute. But Romans 4, keep your hand back in Genesis. And Romans 4, and we're looking at uh, verses just 1 through 3 for now, and we'll come back to Romans 4. So what then shall we say that Abraham, our father, has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, well, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, we didn't read that just now when we went back to Genesis 17 through 22. And, uh, but we want to go back now real quick to Genesis 15. And what you want to keep in mind, because we're going to go through Romans 4 a little bit more, what you want to keep in mind here is Genesis 15 happened before Genesis 17. And so when we're talking about Abraham's faith counting to him as righteousness, that was said of him. But it had its working out in Genesis 17 when he carried out what God had said to do and offered up his son Isaac. And so in Genesis 15, 1 through 6, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And then Abram said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, no one is born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who you will come from, or one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. And then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he says, So shall your descendants be. And if you're able to, and nobody can count the stars. And so shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord and he accounted it to him for righteousness. This is where Abraham believed. He believed when God made the promise. He didn't necessarily uh, quit believing. There's no sign of any doubt or anything. But when he went and took Isaac up, and he said right here, it's going to be Isaac, the one that comes from you, the one that comes from Sarah. And, you know, he's an old man, and all he had in his house was his servant Eliezer and his kids. And he's going, you know, Lord, is this going to be it? Well, no, I'm going to keep my word, the Lord said to him. Um, As we go back to Romans, Paul goes back on this, and in this next stretch, there's a lot of passages as we go through it, and we'll kind of take it apart a little bit piece by piece. Because we're talking about justification. I don't want to stand before the Lord without being justified. I don't want to... stand there in my own righteousness I need his righteousness and there's, there's a, a good reason for us to understand this but keep in mind it was before uh, he offered up Isaac that God had declared him righteous because of his faith and so there's a difference between the faith and the righteousness of Abraham 
and the law that came later, the law of circumcision, the covenant that came later. And um, also says the Gentile believers. So Romans 4, and we're going to go from 4, 4 all the way through 5, 5. And we'll talk about it a little bit as we go. So it says, Now to him who works, speaking of Abraham, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. And just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from the works, and that's blessing, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered, and blessed is the man to whom the Lord has, does not impute sin. And so in this first few verses, 5 through 8, uh, he's quoting Psalm 32. It's a good passage to, to know and to learn. We don't need to, to go there. He says simply, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose deeds are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute sin. So he's, he's not answering for his own sin because if you read through Psalm 32, he repented. He cried out to the Lord. He asked him, Lord, cover my sins. And the Lord did. David acknowledges his sin, exposes his iniquity, it says in Psalm 32, confesses his sin. God forgives. God delivers. And it ends in the verse that we all know, he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. And uh, it's imputed. It's not earned. Verses 9 through 12 in Romans. So does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. Well, how then is it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? And so Paul's making this argument and talking about the law. And so when he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of righteousness of faith, which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all, all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness may be imputed to them also, and the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of faith, which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. Oftentimes we think about the Jewish people, and obviously they're called the circumcision, keeping the law, and um, we are Gentiles, most of us. If you're not, don't raise your hand, that's fine. God bless you. And all but the most of us, uh, we find ourselves not included in the circumcision, scripturally speaking. And yet, he says, well, it wasn't when Abraham was a Jew. Jews were, you know, Israelis or, or the Israelites, you know, this was, or the Hebrews. This all came later, after Abraham believed when uh, he believed God's promise. And so that's the point simply that Paul is making here, here through uh, verses 9 through 12. Abraham was declared righteous and justified by his faith before the covenant of circumcision. Same for us who believe in God also that he has promised us salvation through Jesus Christ when we walk in faith, it says, when we believed. In verses 13 through 17, for the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. When God made that promise to him, he didn't have the law yet. For it was those who are of the law, or sorry, if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect because the law brings about wrath. For where the law is, there is no, or where there is no law, there is no transgression. We didn't even know that it was wrong to um, sin necessarily based on, well, you know, let me explain. Chuck Smith put it this way. It was a great little uh, example for us. You know, you go to the beach, you get a hotel, just you're thinking when the tide comes in, it's going to be right there. And you're maybe the second or third floor up and you're thinking, this is a great view and all that. And then you look down and you see this little sign that says, no fishing from the balcony. And that never occurred to me. I'm going to go get my fishing pole. Look at that. It's right there. And that's the example. Uh, we, we wouldn't have known that it was sin until the law came along and told us that it was sin. And so it's, it's a, 
example that he's giving that the righteousness that we have is in that faith, not in keeping the law. And so verses 13 through 15, for the promise that he would be the heir of the world, or is that the one we just did? Alrighty. And so that righteousness is by faith before the law of Moses, which brought the awareness. The law brings awareness. The law is our schoolmaster. It lets us know that we can't do it. We cannot complete it on our own. It lets us know that our righteousness is never going to be enough. We talked about it Wednesday night. Uh, Catalina sits off of um, California there. How many miles? Anybody know? So you, you can get a guy who's healthy, and he's fit, and he trains, and Mark Spitz or whoever you want to get. And, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a trek to get out there. It's the ocean, and, and so it's not going to be easy. Well, that, you know, he might make it all the way to maybe even 100 yards offshore, but he's not going to make it the whole way. That's what we're saying here. Even if you keep all the law, you're going to fail in some. And the other guy maybe hardly does anything like us Gentiles. We, we weren't even paying attention to the law. We were doing whatever felt good. And so we go and we, we swim out maybe about 30 yards and we're done. Where this other guy went maybe 30 miles. And so either way they fall short. It doesn't matter how close you got. All that matters is your righteousness is not going to be enough no matter how close you get. There's some awful, awful good people in this world, but they're not a good enough. You can be a Mother Teresa, but if your righteousness is found in, in yourself and not in, in the Lord Jesus and his provision for us, well, that's not good enough. And so that's why Paul needs to explain here through Romans 4 that it's not by our own righteousness. So verses 16 through 17. So therefore it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, by faith that makes us his descendants. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations, we read that, in the presence of him who he believed, God who gives life to the dead, that's us, and calls those things which do not exist as though they are, and we didn't exist. You know, we were Gentiles. There was nothing for us. This is really important to us. Paul talks about this mystery in other books of the, of the Bible or of other New Testament books. He calls it a mystery of old, this church thing, this Gentile thing that comes along. And... Uh, it's the work of God among the Gentiles in Colossians and First Timothy. Well, this is us. This is the church. And until Jesus came, it was a mystery. Revealed from before the foundation of the earth. Uh, not revealed until. But it was set up. It was established before the foundation. And in verses 18 through 21, who contrary to hope, in hope, believed, so that he became the father of many nations, According to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about a hundred years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was able to perform. So here he is, you know, physically old. Physically weak, both he and Sarah, what we would probably call impossible, a medical or a physical impossibility, beyond any hope of having kids. And here yet he believed. And then he gets a kid, the one, the son of promise. And the Lord says, you know, take him up on the mountain, put him on the altar. And to test that faith, and the Lord does do that for us. We believe, we have faith, and in the first chapter of James we talked about that. There are trials, there is testing, and there is things that we go through that what's the purpose? To see how strong we are physically? To see how strong we are mentally and with logic to figure things out, this complex problem or this frustration? To see how good we are with negotiating with people who are giving us so much grief? Whatever the trial may be that we're going through, the reason for it is that we would have endurance and our hope would be in the things to come. 
our hope would be in the eternal kingdom to come and that our faith that he's going to do what he promised he was going to do, bring us home to himself. That is that where we place our faith. And we have that faith and the trials, that's what brings it forth. That's what brings it out. That's what gives it endurance. In uh, verses 22 to 25, this now points up who exactly our faith is in. And therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness and now, it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus, our Lord, from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised up because of our justification. Are we justified in works? Well, we'll find out a little bit here. But first off and foremost, we're justified by faith in the work that was done to raise Jesus up and the power it was to raise him up. You know, who's our faith in? Is our faith in ourselves, in our own strength? Is our faith in our pastor? Is our faith in our, our uh, boss at work or our, our husband or our wife or our kids or our parents? What's our faith really in? You know, we have to remember to put our faith in the one and only who could do everything that needs to be done in our lives. And that's the Lord Jesus. In verses uh, 1 through 5 of the chapter 5, um, Therefore, it says, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. No more at enmity, no more at war like the world is with God. Through whom also we have access now by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, just like James. Paul is saying, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character. And character, hope. And that hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is given to us. That love and that seal that he sealed us with. And, um, you know, we have that hope. And it's not a disappointing hope. There is a disappointing hope and we talked about that last time. You know, that those that don't believe there's a resurrection. And I don't imagine why anybody would want to be a Christian if there's no resurrection because, you know, the, the abuse that Christians take in this life, um, all in hope of the next life. Back to James, uh, verses 5, or chapter uh, 2, verses 25. There was Adam. God spoke to Adam. He said some things to Cain. He spoke to Enoch and walked with that Enoch. Uh, he spoke to Noah. We have these accounts of the Lord speaking. And the Lord spoke to Abraham. Well, the Israelites were coming through the land. And um, let's, let's, before we go, that, well, let's read James 25. Likewise, was not Rahab uh, the harlot also justified by works? when she received the messengers and sent them out another way. And that account for us is in Joshua chapter 2, if you'd like to go there. James put it in there for us, and so I don't want to just abbreviate it. And we do have some time. So now Joshua, the son of Nun, had sent out. They hadn't yet crossed the Jordan. and um, Or they had just across the Jordan, and he saw so he was sending out some spies, scoping out the land. Joshua, the son of Nun, sent out two men from Acacia, the Acacia Grove to spy secretly, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came to the house of the harlot named Rahab and lodged there. And it was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men have come here uh, tonight, and they've come here uh, from the children of Israel to search out the country. And so the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, you have entered, uh, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out the country. And the woman took the two men and hid them. And so she said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And it happened as the gate was being shut, when it was dark, that the men went out. And where the men went, I do not know, pursued them quickly. For you may overtake them. And if you haven't been keeping track, she's first of all a harlot. Secondly, she just lied. Hmm, good example of uh, justification, eh? 
And the woman took the two men and hid them. And where are we? Uh, verse 6. Um, verse 5. And it happened as the gate was being shut and dark. And verse 6. So she had brought them up to the roof and hid them within the stalks of the flax. And she laid, had laid an order on the roof. And the men pursued them by the road to Jordan and to the fjords. And um, as soon as those who pursued them had gone out, they shut the gate. And now before they laid down, she came up on the roof and said to the man, I know that the Lord has given you the land. Well, we'll see how she knew that. That the terror of you has fallen on us and that the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water in the Red Sea for you. Boy, word travels fast, eh? All the way from that time walking through the desert. And um, for you, when you came out of Egypt and you did it and you... And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, of whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any more courage in uh, anyone because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Now therefore I beg you, Swear to me by the Lord, since you have shown kindness to me, that you will show kindness to my father's house and give me a true token and spare my father, my mother, my brothers, my sisters. You know, she's going all in. You know, whatever that, uh, that faith that she had, she's knowing that these guys and asking these guys who are serving or representing the Lord God of heaven for as much as she can and all of her family, all of her brothers and sisters, you know, have, deliver our lives from death. And so the man answered her, Our lives for yours, if none of you tell his, this business of ours. And it shall be when the Lord has given us this land that we will deal kindly and truly with you. And then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was on the city, and on the city wall, and she dwelt on the wall. And then she said to them, Get to the mountains, lest the, the pursuers you know, meet you or catch up to you and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. And after you may go your way. And then the, meds, the men said to her, we will be blameless of this oath of yours, which you have made us swear, unless when we come into the land, you bind this line of scarlet. And there's a scarlet cord that runs through scripture right down to the blood that Jesus shed. And um, through this window and let us down, unless you bring your father your mother, your brothers, and all your father's household to your own house. And so it shall be that whatever goes outside the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. And whoever is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head if a hand is laid on them. And if you tell this business of ours, then we will be free of our oath, which you made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. And she sent them away. They departed. She bound the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and went to the mountain and stayed there three days until the pursuers returned. The pursuers sought them all the way but did not find them. Now the two men returned and descended from the mountain. They crossed over and they came to Joshua, the son of Nun, told him all that had been fallen them. And they said to Joshua, Truly the Lord has delivered all the land into our hands, for indeed the inhabitants of the country are faint-hearted. You know, you hide in the house where the the scarlet cord is. We hide in Jesus, in his righteousness, because of his blood that was shed for us. And so the story of Rahab, you know, James points out, not only was she a Gentile, she was also a harlot. And we talked about her even telling some tales to hide these guys. But out of fear and out of reverence and out of respect for the Lord and knowing that he was indeed the Lord. She says it right there. We read it. No chance of finding any justification in keeping the law for Rahab. I mean, a harlot would be stoned to death. Um, if you were a, your daughter, a Levite, had a daughter who was a harlot, she was to be burned to death. Harlotry and all was clearly sin, was clearly an abomination to the Lord. But Rahab had enough faith uh, just to recognize that God was with, with Israel, a simple faith. So she helped the spies, and she took her place 
in the book of Hebrews, the hall of faith. Back to Hebrews 11:31. This Gentile, this harlot. In verse 31 it says, By faith the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. And so these guys that were in the, the hall of faith, these saints in uh, um, Hebrews chapter 11, they're not there because of what they believed only or what they said they believed. Well, they were there because of what they did, the actions that proved out what their faith was. And if all they were were preachers, well, it was at a cost. They were sawn asunder. They were, you know, you read through the, the Hebrews 11, and you'll see what they suffered for preaching. So if they were preachers, yeah, it was all about what they were saying, but it was what they suffered in order to, and that faith that they endured that and kept on preaching. That might be all the suffering. That might be all the, the, the works that we suffer or that we have sometimes in that we simply preach. We simply tell people, and as a result, we suffer. For it. We don't get invited this or that, or we don't get to enjoy the promotion here or there, or we don't even get to keep our job you know, for, for the days that we're living in. Who knows? You have to be sensitive. You can't offend. You, know, you can't read Romans chapter 1, verse 18 to the end without offending. You know, that's not going to happen in a lot of job places, a lot of workplaces. And so what's our response in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2? Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. There it is, repentance. Let us run with endurance the race that was set before us. There is being patient under trials, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. So you're looking at your faith and you're wanting, gee, is my faith saving me? Is my faith enough? Is my faith the kind of justification that I need? Is my faith got the works? Well, who's the author? We're looking to him. He's the author of your faith. He's the finisher. He's going to bring it to completion. In James 1, we're talking about trials and testing. You know? And so that's the thing that he's doing, bringing about that patience. And that word, you know, he's going to make it perfect. He's going to make it mature. He's going to, he's going to make it complete. Looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, for who the, or, or who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, it's the same for us. We consider him as our example. That's why we endure what we endure in this life. Because the joy that's set before us. Having joy in trials is not easy. I mean, to try and fake a smile when you're suffering is not a pretty face. And that's not what he's talking about. He's, he's talking about down deep we have this joy knowing that what lies ahead for us, keeping our eyes on that. And, you know, Lord, come quickly. And in the meantime, let us do what it is that uh, you'd have us do. And so does James contradict Paul? We just went through and established justification by faith. James established justification by works and not faith alone. So what's the balance? You know, um, James say, says it's our faith working together with works. And by works, faith was made mature, made complete, not keeping the letter of the law. He talked about in the previous part of chapter 2, but that royal law of love. We're not trying to do works that are keeping the law in order to be saved. We're because we are saved and we have this faith and he's worked in us these things. Now we are free. And that's that free law of liberty. And simply says, without any works, faith is useless and faith is dead. Well, what does Paul say to sum up everything in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10? And I think this is a good capsule for everything we talked about. I don't think Paul disagrees with James one bit. I think they not only complement one another, there's no, there's no contradiction. I think they both have the same thing in mind. I think the, and both are true, even the Lord talking about walking in repentance, talking about keeping his commandments. And what was the greatest commandment? To love. You know, love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and your brother as yourself. But in Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sin, 
in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air and the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom you also once conducted yourselves in the lust of your flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love, which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. And it's by grace you've been saved, raised up together, made, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And here it is, by, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that, not of yourself, it is of gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast that we've been saved by our works. But here's James. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There's your balance. There's getting the cart back behind the horse and making it so that we're aware that uh, it's clearly by him. You know, we were sinners that walk, once walked in our own sins, but he washed us, he redeemed us. Only God can do that. You know, left to ourselves, we're going to fail. And he can only work in us to do what was prepared, or I should say only he can work in us to do what was prepared way before time began. Works that only he can do. What's our part? Well, look to Jesus. He's the author and finisher of our faith. And keep his word and walk in his works. And that's all I got. Praise the Lord. Let's stand and pray. Thank you, Lord, for all that you do in us. Keep our eyes on that. Keep our eyes on, on your kingdom to come. And uh, let us just continue to do that which you've asked to do. Love one another. Continue to love you with all our hearts, minds, and souls. And so, Father, please send us with the power and the strength and the will to do your good will in all these things. In Jesus' name, amen.